Have a good day. Thank you, Andy. Um, so we've announced uh, a, a few weeks ago where we are prayerfully considering um, helping another family uh, resettle to the area. Uh, for those of you who've been a part of our church for a few years know that um, a few years back we were able to help resettle two families um, here in the United States. Uh, a family from Rwanda and a family uh, from Benin. Uh, those families were able to get resettled here. We were able to serve and help them along. Uh, please have God's word uh, open you up to Acts chapter 26. And we'll start from verse 12. And we'll go to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 26. We'll start from verse 12. And go to the end of the chapter. Please all rise. This is the reading of God's holy word. In this connection, I journey to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I started here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must first suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we thank you this day you will once more give us your living word. And we ask that you would indeed open our eyes of faith, open our ears to hear, and soften our hearts that we may grasp the things that you have set aside for your holy people. Show us the joy and the crazy good news of the gospel today in Christ Jesus, whom you have sent. We pray this in his name. Amen. Every year there's an annual bike race called the Tour Divide. It follows the length of the Rocky Mountains from Canada to the Mexican border. If you look up, I have a little map to give you a little snippet. It's about 2,700 or 2,745 miles, I think, to be exact. And it's called the Great Divide Bike Route. It's meant to be an ultra-distance ride that's supposed to be extreme and tests an individual's will and desire to carry on through many obstacles and trials and hardships. Not only that, it's meant to be a self-sustained ride. That means you're not going to have a team following you, supporting you, giving you things. But you have few packed bags, some cash, going corner store to cornerstone, camping in the forest sometimes, or if you can find lodging, from the one border to the other border. In 2015, a woman named Leo Wilcox set out to race the Tour Divide. Here's a picture of her here. And due to breathing complications during the race, she had to rush herself to a hospital en route. And having received the treatment that she needed, she continued her race and crossed the finish line, setting a new woman's course record. Now check this out. Two weeks later, I'll, I'll use my SpongeBob voice, two weeks later. Two weeks later after this, she rode to the starting line from home home in Alaska and took on the trail for a second time, and she finished this beating her previous record by a day and a half. Crazy. Recently, she set out again for a third time to complete this course in hopes of finishing it just under 14 days, but she was not able to finish. And at the news of hearing Wilcox desiring to take on this race again on the Great Divide, many thought she was crazy. She says that some even told her, you must love suffering. And we can gather from the interview and some of the footage that was provided that she's not taking on this endeavor because she loves suffering. In fact, do any of us do something for the sheer joy of suffering? No. Suffering is often a part of what we love to do. And because we love to do it, we don't really see it as suffering. We're not chasing the suffering. We're chasing the desire and the joy. And we see this in the case of Leah Wilcox. 
As we draw closer to the end of our series in Acts, we see that the Apostle Paul has been on a long journey trying to cross, so to speak, the great divide between the Jews and the Gentiles with the gospel message of Jesus that shows him that in him there is truth, there is a way, there is a light that points everyone to a deep and personal relationship with God. And I want to make clear that the Apostle Paul here didn't just journey around the world all across the map to get stoned, kicked out of town, thrown in jail. He didn't do this because he loved suffering, but simply because he loved Jesus. Yet the suffering he endured, as we know, is very much a part of following Jesus and the gospel. The main thrust of our passage today happens to be in the latter half, where Paul is not simply making a defense now before King Agrippa, but he's also preaching. He's taking this opportunity to evangelize and in some ways continue the mission that he has set out to do. The mission of the gospel doesn't stop because of a few bumps in the road. For Paul, the mission of the gospel doesn't stop because he was chained, stoned, thrown out, and even jailed. But in fact, the mission of the gospel all the more continues. And in verse 24, he tells us that as Paul's making this defense, our boy Festus calls out with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. Imagine if I'm preaching, and I hope no one does this today, if someone stands up and says, Walt, you're crazy, man. Your great learning... (laughs) I only have a master's. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. I would say, oh, well, thanks, mate. No one's ever said that before. They thought Paul was absolutely crazy. In verse 29, as Paul is not only making his appeal to the grand audience here, but also to King Agrippa, he shares his heart's desire. And his heart's desire is that everyone who hears the good news today would be like he is, set free in the gospel, have a dwelling place with Jesus, and love it so much that they too would go forward in a mission so that others may come to Christ. That's crazy. Paul was crazy for Jesus. Paul basically says, my hope is that everyone else, after hearing this good news, gets crazy for Jesus. We're going to look at three things, the crazy gospel, the crazy man, and the crazy world. First thing, the crazy gospel. Look with me in in verses 6 through 8. It'll be up there for you. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. O king, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I love the wording here. Paul is saying, I stand here on trial because of my hope. And even though Paul's standing on trial, he's saying, I'm not simply standing because you've cuffed me and now you're telling me to reply. But Paul is saying, to some degree, I'm also standing here on my own will and volition to testify now to the hope that I have in Jesus. I stand here not because you're forcing me, because in some ways this was God's plan and I want to be here. He's here because of the hope he has in God's promise that Jesus not only came to free us from the guilt of our sins, but also having died for us was raised from the dead so that all who trust in him would have eternal life. Now, 
Many of us have heard that line, that snippet I just said. That's the gospel, right? That's the packaged gospel. Many of us have heard that so many times. Even if you're new, you probably heard some portion of that. And perhaps because the familiarity of that is upon us that we take that good news for granted. Maybe some of us have forgotten how crazy that actually sounds. And I want to pause and say, it's okay to say the gospel is crazy. That, that's crazy. Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven to die for my sins because I needed someone to pay for them. And then not only that, on the third day, he rose again from the dead so that if I believe in him, death in this life is just a shadow to cross into eternal life where there's eternal joy and bliss and tears are no more. That's crazy. That's crazy, friends. That's crazy. I want to point out two aspects of the gospel. That's really crazy. And I'm hoping that it falls afresh on us. First, the first crazy aspect of the gospel is that even though we, you and I, the people of God all throughout the Bible, separate themselves from God, he continues to unite himself back to them. After rejection and rejection and rejection, as the people of God run away, turn to other things, as you and I parallel that same reality, God continues to come back to them over and over and over again. Even though we stubbornly live our hell-bound lives to seek out our own pleasure, our own desires, he continually pursues those who he loves and draws near to them. And I want to illustrate this with a crazy story from the Bible. In the book of Hosea, we learn about a prophet who was instructed to marry a woman named Gomer. Uh, I knew a guy who thought about naming his daughter Gomer. It's probably not a good idea. And uh, it did cross my mind as we were expecting a daughter in January. Gomer? Nah, probably not. But look at this. Hosea 1 verse 2, if you look above with me, this is what it says. This is what God says to the prophet. Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He's saying, Hosea, go marry Gomer, this woman, who will not be faithful to you. And in some ways, it's supposed to parallel the unfaithfulness of God's people to him. And we don't know exactly why God asked this of Hosea. It's crazy, right? But we do know that it really parallels the love story between God and his people. We're told that Gomer bore three children and then left him to be with another man. And though Hosea had every right to abandon her, the Lord told him to take her back. That's not all. Check this out. Hosea didn't simply take back Gomer, but he actually ransomed her. He paid the man who she was with and committing adultery with so that he can ransom her back and restore her and redeem her. So Hosea goes to this man that his wife has left him for and ransoms her back. It's crazy. But that's supposed to make us think about God's love for us. As many times you and I run away, he goes and ultimately ransoms us through his son so that we can be with him. If you look at Hosea 3.3, it'll be up there. Hosea was to say to his ransomed wife this, having redeemed her and bringing her back home. This is what the Lord tells her to say to her. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. 
after all of this, God wants Hosea to redeem his wife, to bring her back, to give her a dwelling place, a safety, to no longer count her sins against her and say, I will be with you and you will be with me. That's crazy. And that's what God does for us as we run away time and time again. That through the sacrifice of Jesus, you and I are ransomed from our whoring and running away and are brought back to him to dwell in his house forever, where our sins are washed away, where we no longer have to be ashamed or guilty, but simply loved and accepted, to know that we will be his people and he will be our God. That's crazy. Second thing I want to point out about the gospel, that's absolutely berserk. Not only is this possible through the crazy gospel of Jesus, this is sealed and guaranteed for all eternity by the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Look with me, 1 Corinthians 15. A lot of you guys are familiar with this passage. I'll briefly read it for us again. And if Christ has not been raised, this is the resurrection, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead after ransoming us, if he remained in the grave, then our sins are actually not forgiven. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Christ died for our sins but remained dead, then we would still be in our sins. We would still have a ransom over our head. But the fact is that God raised him from the dead after completing the work of salvation. As to seal and guarantee as the Holy Spirit now is upon all those who believe that the work that Jesus has done on the cross, the ransom that he's paid, can never be undone. That there could be no more debt accrued on top of that. That it is final. That Jesus not only gave his life, but was justified and raised again. So that death no longer would have hold on him, and death no longer would have hold on anyone who believes in him. That's crazy! If you're sitting here listening to that and you're like, mm, yeah, 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 I've heard that before, like I have. Man, my hope is that it would just fall fresh again. Don't you realize what I'm saying up here is crazy? That God would love his people so much that he would send Jesus to die for their sins and then raise him from the dead so that everyone who is in Jesus will have eternal life. That's crazy, but that's what the gospel is. That's what I'm telling you. That's what we've been saying. That's what we're learning. That's what our hope is in. As we come to church, as we go to Bible study, as we minister and encourage one another through our daily struggles, none of us are here because we love to, to suffer and serve the church and give our tithes and offering and, and our time. None of us are here because we like to be vulnerable and hurt by others, we're here hopefully because we are just crazy about Jesus and the crazy gospel somehow makes sense to us. John 14, 1, 4, this is what Jesus says. Perhaps as we can relate to Paul in his chains, in his sufferings. By the way, Paul was in prison for two years before being able to make this appeal. Two years Sometimes I can't go two days of uncomfortableness. My like, God, why are you doing this to me? I haven't pooped in two days. 
It's crazy. This is, what, this is what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. What's what's Jesus saying to to, to those who love him and trust him? He's basically saying what Hosea had said to Gomer. He's basically saying what God has always been saying to his people, that I have a dwelling place for you. You no longer have to run. Your sins are not counted against you. There's no more guilt, no more shame, no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, and no more tears, for I will wipe them away. If it's not true, would I have gone away to prepare that place for you? Jesus says, when I come back, I'm going to take you with me, and I will be with you, and you will be with me. That's crazy. That's why in our text today, in chapter 26 and verse 8, Paul says, in his defense of the gospel, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Yeah, the gospel sounds crazy, but if we really think about it, is it really impossible that God, who has created all things, can raise something that's dead? Paul's like, no. Because if you have hope in Christ, it can never be put to death. You will never be put to shame. And so we sing in a hymn that we often know, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the crazy gospel. So we see Paul as we move on to our second point. The last two points will be more brief. A crazy man. As he makes a defense, appeal, and an evangelistic approach to the crazy gospel, we see this crazy man standing. And a brief overview of Paul's life will show you that this guy went from one crazy to another crazy. Another familiar text, Philippians. Look up with me. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to give you segments at a time. This is Paul's credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. <coughs> this dude is crazy. He was raised according to the Jewish laws. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He had an impressive pedigree as he is of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin at that, and a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was of the strictest religious sect, the Pharisees. He was so zealous for the old ways that he persecuted the church and he chased down with authority from the higher-ranking governors to find these so-called Christians, put them on trial, and even, as he says, cast his ballot to their death sentence. As obedience to the law, he said he is blameless. But check out what he says in the next verse, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, you know it's a crazy, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. From one crazy to another. During the course of his life, he had it all. And he counts them as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He says it's rubbish. He said it's better to know Jesus as Lord and Savior than have anything that this world can offer. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. He said, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. What? Paul, you had it all. And, 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 you, and you count all that as loss? You say that's rubbish because Jesus is better? I don't know. Maybe Festus was right. Maybe your boy was right. Maybe his great learning has driven him mad. Paul, you're crazy. You are crazy. But Paul replies to him, this is funny. He's like, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking the truth with reasonableness. Because upon hearing the gospel, seeing Christ Jesus himself, he realizes this so-called crazy gospel is not so crazy after all. As Paul tells of his conversion experience, he goes back to that time in Damascus. And in verse 18, we're able to see a glimpse of what Jesus says to him. It's not up there, but listen, it says... I am sending you, Paul, basically, to open your eyes, to, sorry, open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and the place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus is saying, Paul, I'm sending you so that you can bring people from darkness to light, from the hold of Satan to God, so that having received forgiveness of sins, they would have a dwelling place with me in faith. Reinforcing this crazy message, Paul is saying, I'm here because I want to tell you all that in Jesus there's forgiveness of sin and in Jesus there's eternal life. Paul says, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking true and rational words. I remember uh, as a kid, I've asked my dad a few times, Dad, how did you become a Christian? You know, for the most part, he would just kind of evade the question. Oh, yeah, yeah, your grandpa was a Christian. Yeah, we went, we went to church. And I don't know, I was just so curious. So I just, once in a while, I'd ask him, Dad, how did you become a Christian? Particularly as I was going to seminary, I, I wanted to know how that happened. Um, and I remember him telling me a snippet of, of kind of his coming to reality or coming to, to faith in this so-called crazy gospel. He said as a kid um, in his town that, you know, Christians would come in and they would hold, you know, like kind of school days or camps. And he was like, yeah, they'd give us pencils and little erasers and candy. And, you know, we would just go, him and his siblings, they'd just go because it was something to do. And he said one day while walking home from, from that, he heard a woman in the bathroom, in the outhouse, right? Back then, 
probably in some of the rural areas over there in Korea. It's, you know, you don't have lavatories inside, but it's kind of an outhouse. And he said he heard this woman singing about Jesus in the bathroom. And he said his initial thought was like, what is this crazy woman doing? And I don't know what song she was singing. I don't know what volume. I don't know what octave, what key, right? It doesn't matter, right? She's singing about Jesus in the bathroom. That's crazy. And if God can use a crazy person taking a dump to bring a child in the boondocks of Korea to faith in Jesus, he can use you. I was just cracking up at the thought of that. Man, if God can use me taking a dump for somebody to come in Jesus, I mean, nothing's impossible. That means he can use all of us, all right? Doesn't mean you need a seminary degree. Doesn't mean you need to even take CB. If the opportunity comes, well, maybe you know what? Let me rephrase. You don't even need the opportunity. Just live faithfully. Sing to Jesus sometimes in the car or in the outhouse bathroom. It's crazy. Or is it? The last thing I want to point out, right, we looked at the crazy gospel. We looked at the crazy man. But I want to, what, what I really want to point out is that there's a crazy world we're living in. That's the last point. The truth is the world is crazy, folks. Festus is crazy and King Agrippa was even crazier. These men only cared about their political power and religious authority. Let me just be clear that that's not what Christianity is about. That's not what the church is about. And if we've ever made it about such, we need to repent and turn back. Let me read a little portion of, of a commentary from Kent Hughes. And it describes a little bit about the context of who King Agrippa is and, 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 and the people there. Start quote. It's not up there, so listen. Start quote. King Agrippa II was the latest of the Herald dynasty, the last of the Heralds to meddle with Christ or his followers. His great-grandfather was the King Herald who had feared the birth of the Christ child and murdered the male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem. The grand-uncle of Agrippa II had murdered John the Baptist and his father, Agrippa I. Had, he had executed James and imprisoned Peter and was eaten with worms as punishment for allowing people to worship him as a god right there in Caesarea. With Agrippa and Bernice, the two in our text today, with Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, who was one year younger, she had once been engaged to Marcus, a nephew of the philosopher Philo. Then she married her uncle, Herod, king of Calchas. But now she was living incestuously with her full-blooded brother, Agrippa II. So notorious was her conduct that when she later became the emperor Titus's mistress, he had to send her away because of the moral outcry of pagan Rome. Agrippa and Bernice were a sick, sin-infested couple. It's funny, right? Paul standing there in trial from the eyes of everyone else. But in the view of faith, he's standing there for the hope of the gospel. In the world's eyes, he's standing there in chains. But in his eyes... He's a free man. In the world's eye, he's a crazy man, believing in a crazy gospel. In his eyes, he sees the brokenness of the people's actual lives, who are covering it simply behind religious authority and political gain. And this is the point I want to make. The world so quickly 
labels us, assumes, criticizes, accuses us as crazy. The reality is the world is really crazy, guys. The world sees the biblical view of sex and marriage as crazy. What? You're going to wait till marriage to have sex? That's stupid. That's crazy. The world says it's your body. It's your choice. It's yours to celebrate. But it's crazy how much sexual brokenness there is, how much guilt and shame people deal with because of this world's view. And the Bible says sex is a gift, a beautiful thing given to you by God to share with your spouse in vulnerability and tenderness and love and joy and passion in a safe place where you know you will always be loved and accepted. And the world says, that's crazy. Is it? The world sees the view of biblical usage of finances, what you do with your money is crazy. The world says, that's your hard-earned money. Spend it how you want. Invest in your future. Enjoy life. Get more of it. Why would you give to the church? Yeah, give to a few causes you believe in, but that's yours. It should make you happy. It should get you things. But it's crazy how many celebrities go on social media and say, you know what, wealth is not everything. I have it all. I'm not satisfied. It's crazy how it comes from their own mouths that celebrities talk about how hard their lives are, how miserable they are, but they have all the riches to some degree of the world. Are we crazy? Are we crazy for giving our finances, our hard-earned money to the kingdom cause that have eternal value? Or is the world crazy, saying that's all yours. You can do whatever you with it because it's going to satisfy you. I don't know. The world sees the biblical view of how we spend our time as good stewards. It's crazy. The world says, think of all the time you could have if you don't go to church on Sunday. Think of all the time you would have to do internships and work in the summer if you don't go on those silly mission trips. Think of all the things you could accomplish. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know anyone who uses that logic to not go to church and spend time who's so productive. Most of the time, probably those Folks, sleep in, get brunch. I mean, I like brunch. That, that's, that's not a bad thing. Sleeping in is not either. But are, you, are, are we really that more productive if we were to have that time? Don't go on mission trips. Why would you do that? Go on vacation instead. You know, I got friends that go on really nice vacations. I've been on a few, praise the Lord. And I think we all conclude the same thing. When it's over, we still feel empty, especially our bank accounts. We're tired. We're more sick. And the joke is always, man, I need the vacation after the vacation to recover from the vacation. Not only that, when we look on social media and we see other people on vacation while we're at home, we think, why, is my, why am I suffering while others are flourishing? <laughs> is it really crazy what the Bible says that we are to do with our time as stewards? Or is what the world's saying crazy? You know, I could go on. I could go on and on. But folks, my prayer and my hope is that we would come to see through faith that the crazy gospel, in fact, it is crazy, but it's also not so crazy. That people who believe in Jesus, yeah, in some degree are crazy people, but are, are also not. And that this world we think is so norm, right, is, is probably more crazy than we think. So let me conclude with this. Paul's last word to his crazy audience is that in his heart of hearts, his true desire 
would be that all who hear the good news of Jesus would come to him in faith, have a dwelling place with him for all eternity. In short, Paul's heart's desire is that all who hear the gospel today, the Lord's desire is that all who hear the gospel today would be crazy about Jesus. And that we would stand for this hope. That no matter how pushed down we feel, no matter how strung up we're in the valleys, that we would, as Paul would say in his other letters, press on toward the upward call. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Friends, let's reflect on that appeal now. Whether in a short moment or over a long period of time, my prayer and I, my hope is that we would all turn afresh anew to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, if it be your will, that in this short time, that all who have heard the gospel would turn their faith to Christ who has ransomed us from our sins and who has prepared a dwelling place in the Father's house for all eternity with him. That, Lord, by your Spirit, we would hear this crazy message of your Son, Jesus, and that we would come to see through eyes and ears and hearts of faith that this is the only sane message out there that we would see with clear eyes of faith that the things that this world offers and preaches to us is actually crazy and that you are truth. Lord, we pray that you would have your way in us, bring about a renewal, a revival, a redeemed joy in you once more. And we ask, Lord, because many of us are struggling Many of us do feel so low and pressed down. Many of us can't see past the difficult times and remember Christ. That you would allow us to press on toward the upward call. That you would plant our feet on higher ground. That our prayers would still be, Lord, lift us up and let me stand for the hope that I have in Jesus. We ask this.